0: Uh, We want a faith. If you're you're a Christian, we want a faith that is attractive. Uh, We want a faith that is not kind of an embarrassment that we feel like we have to hide. We want a faith that we feel confident in. We want a faith that is compelling, that even if it could be draws other people actually to know Jesus, we want a faith that knows what we believe, that actually lives what we believe, and is able to use it for good around us that's actually able to use it to help other people. First Peter, the book in the Bible called First Peter, talks about that people would ask Christians a reason for the hope that is within them. And I don't know if you've had that experience, but that's what we want. We want it to be true that the way that we live, the way that we believe, the way that our faith is, is such that people would actually be drawn to it and say, where's this hope coming from? How is it that you live like this? How is it that you live with this kind of resources? That's, that's the kind of faith we want, right? We want an attractive, compelling faith that actually experiences the goodness of God and brings that good into others' life. And that's, that's a great idea. And yet, what are the perceptions of Christianity often around us? Maybe not that. What is it that people think about Christians? I don't know, if you are in your workplace and you just always said, hey, I'm a Christian, just so you, if you're in a job interview, just so you know, I'm a Christian and those beliefs mean a lot to me, would that help? Would that hurt? A lot of times, Christians are looked at in our culture, in Denver, in 2022, often looked at as outdated, maybe extremist, maybe bigoted, Maybe hateful, maybe just weird, Uh, maybe just if you believe those things, that's fine, but kind of keep it to yourself. Don't let it affect things around you. Let it be just kind of a personal belief, but don't let it actually lead to something that influences your choices and your decisions, maybe thought of as judgmental. And so oftentimes what happens is even though we want this faith that is attractive and draws people in, we're tempted towards integration where we just say, all right, I just got to fit in. I need to fit in. I need to find ways that I can just align myself with the people, my coworkers, with employers, with friends, neighborhood. I just need to integrate or we isolate and we say I need to withdraw. These people obviously think I'm a weirdo and they only get stuff from Christians on TV and every I don't every show every show that you watch the Christian is never the good guy. They're always a wacko. And it's just like, man, I don't I I know a lot of Christians and they're not all that crazy. Some of you are, but they're not all that crazy. <laughs> The Christian is always the wacko. In every show, we were just watching something, and it's just like, oh, they're a Christian. Okay, here comes a weird Bible verse out of context. Here comes an insane person, something, right? It's never like Captain America or Iron Man's like, and by the way, I'm a Christian, and that's why I will defeat Thanos today. Like, that never happens. Luke Skywalker, not a Christian, right? All the heroes, not Christians. They probably secretly, Darth Vader is actually like, I'm a Christian, that's what led me to my bigotry of the dark side, you know? Okay, I'll stop with movie references, (laughs) but we are tempted towards integration or isolation where we just kind of pull back and say, I need to just be with people like me, or sometimes we're tempted towards, and these are three I's because I'm a pastor, uh, indignation where we just get mad, we're just angry. We're angry at the culture around us. We're angry at the people around us. We're angry that the beliefs and the values make it harder for us. We're angry at how we're perceived in the culture. All of these things are different from what it is that in our heart of hearts we really want though. We want an attractive faith, a compelling faith, but we are tempted towards an integration, an isolation, an indignation, any of those things. Now, we're looking at this book. that's a couple thousand years old. We're looking at this letter that is written to a pastor named Titus in the city, the region of Crete in Greece. And it really is a similar culture. That culture is very similar to ours, where Christians were the weird people. They were the outcasts. They were the hated people. They weren't liked. They weren't the people that was just okay to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. It was odd in their home and in their work and in the government. And it's easy for us to forget that sometimes. It's easy to think that that's a a new phenomenon that we have to deal with. And yet, it's the very same culture that Paul is speaking into. This is a book on church history called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And just talking about the culture that Christianity was birthed in, the subtitle, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it says, Disincentives were strong if you became a Christian, you could be gossiped about, be made sport of by workmates, get in trouble with your master, be suspect to your neighbors. At times, becoming a believer could get you jailed, sent to the mines, or killed. And there was a luxuriant variety of other religious options to choose from. So there was consequences in choosing to be a Christian, and you didn't have to choose that. There was all sorts of other religious options that were available to people. We tend to assume this growth, the fact that Thousands of years later, Christianity is all across the globe. And forget how surprising it was. Nobody had to join the churches. People were not compelled to become members by invading armies or the imposition of laws. Social convention did not induce them to do so. It was, there was way more disincentive than there was incentive. Indeed, Christianity grew despite the opposition of laws and social convention. These were formidable disincentives. In addition, the possibility of death in persecution loomed over the pre-Constantinian church the first couple hundred years, although few Christians were actually executed. So you've got, that is the culture, that's the setting, that's the context, and yet it grew. How? How did it grow? How was it that even though that was the case, something about Christianity drew people in? Not compelled, but drew people in. And how is it that we can have an attractive faith? What if whatever it was that led them to, even though all of the social, political, cultural pressure was against them, they actually drew people in? What if we could have those same resources? What if that could be true of us? How do we have an attractive faith? So we're going to explore that together. And starting with, let's just look at what is the call that Paul gives to these Christians, that Paul tells Titus to instruct these churches living in this culture. What is the call? How do we live in a culture that is not Christian? How are they to live in Crete? How are we to live in Denver, Arvada, wherever it is that you live? How do we live in a culture that's not Christian? Think about your job. How do you live in your workplace? Think about your school. Think about your neighborhood. Think about maybe even just with individuals that you know. How do we live in a culture with people in situations that is not Christian? And here's what Paul says. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. We'll look at each of these, but look how he starts. Remind them. That's so important. All throughout the Bible, the call is often not here is new information that you need, but the call is often to be reminded. Because it doesn't matter how much you know, we all forget. We all forget. We forget the most basic things of our faith. We forget the most basic things that we are called to. And one of the temptations, if you've been a Christian for a longer period of time, if you've been a Christian for a while, we can tend to start to think, I need new information. Sometimes we use language like, I need to go deeper. Maybe, or maybe you just need to actually live out what you've already been told. Maybe you just need the old truth to come new to your heart again. That's what Paul says. He says, remind them. Remind them of things that have already been taught, which is part of why he's talking about in the context, he's telling this pastor to remind the church. That's part of why this is important. There's probably not a lot of new stuff that I'm gonna tell you today. And probably not next week. And probably not the following week. But there's a lot of stuff that I need to remind us about. And that is part of why Sundays are so important for our souls. It's not just new information, but we need the reminders of what God has given to us because we are forgetful. We're forgetful people. And so he starts with this, remind them. And then he says, submit to the rulers and authorities to obey. Does anyone like that? I didn't hear any amens. I didn't hear anybody amen that. If I said, God wants you to know you're forgiven of everything you did this weekend. Amen. I know we don't normally amen much, but but this is definitely one that's not getting amens anywhere. I don't like that. You don't like that? Submit to rulers and authorities and obey? That's what he starts off with. Submit to rulers and authorities and obey. Now, we've got deep ingrained in us as American people that we do not submit to anybody. We don't submit to the British. We don't submit to anybody, right? Especially not the British. (laughs) (laughs) Submit to rulers and authorities. That's what we're called to do. Sometimes as Christians, we can even feel like, well, if it's a bad leader then I don't need to follow their laws. If we've got not our candidate in office at the highest level or at lower levels, if it's, well, you don't understand, the governor is this or the president is this. You know who was the president here? Nero, which was an insane maniac that hated Christians. There were literally Christians crucified and on fire. So, I don't think we have it that bad. So it doesn't really matter who the president is, who the governor is, who the senators are, who the mayor is, who the the boss is at your place of employment. It doesn't matter the quality of their faith or leadership or character. We are called to be good citizens. Now, does that mean that we can't vote? No. We live in a democracy. That's great. We can vote. Does it mean we can't protest? No, we can protest. We can say, we don't like this. This is wrong. This should change. It even, there's even room that we should disobey when things go against God's word. But in general, our call is to submit to rulers and authorities and obey, to live as good citizens in the place that we find ourselves in. And sometimes, again, Christians can say, yeah, but this isn't my home. Jesus is my king. Okay, but if you went to another country, Think about other countries, they drive like England, again, they drive on the other side of the road, right? If you go to England, you don't say, well, this isn't my home, this isn't my country, I belong to another kingdom, and you drive on the other side of the road, and you say, this isn't my home. Well, yeah, but you're there now, and God has left us here now, and we are to be good citizens, to follow the rules that are in place. Listen, just so you know, this is repeated all throughout the New Testament. This isn't some one random call that's put in there. Peter says it, Paul says it in Romans, says it here, it's, Jesus talks about it. We're, we're told multiple times that this is part of what our calling is in a place that isn't our home with unjust leaders, but we are still called to be good citizens in those places. So sometimes, I'm kind of focusing on this because sometimes Christians are hyper-spiritual and say, yeah, but I only follow Jesus, or I only, these people, they're not my, this isn't my home, these aren't my leaders, it's just the Bible, okay, but the Bible says this over and over again. And if we can't even just be good citizens as as a starting place, if we can't even just be faithful citizens as a starting place. It's going to be really easy in the culture that we live in for people to say, see, you are hateful, you are bigoted, you are outdated, you are, you're not good for society. And they might say those things anyway, but we shouldn't let it be said because we're actually going against what we are called to. So, there you go. Like I said, nobody likes that. No amens. No one will email me and say, I love that point. That's all right. Okay, all right, I got one. I'll take it. Thank you. <clears throat> Next, he says this, be ready for every good work. Be ready for every good work. Often we have opportunities to do good. Oftentimes they are around us. The idea of being ready for every good work is implying that you will see something. Now we should be proactive about good works also. Paul has already taught us that, but we should be ready for every good work, which implies you will see things. There will be things around you. There are people in your life that are probably in need. There's probably needs that pop up in your neighborhood, in your school, whether you're attending school or you're for your kids' school. There's needs that pop up in your work. There's needs that pop up in relationships that you have. All around us, there are needs. There are opportunities. Do you, do you see the opportunities? And Paul says, be ready for every good work. It means we should be the people that jump on what we see. We should be the people that see, here's an opportunity to serve in school, in my neighborhood, with this individual. And that we are ready to do good. Again, not people that say, this doesn't matter. All I care about is people's souls. They just need to know Jesus. All I care about is church. All I care about is Bible, and yeah, these things are silly, that doesn't really matter. Who cares if you need to sign up to bring cupcakes to your school? Who cares if, you know, I don't really need to sign the birthday card for the person at work, or I don't need to, like, it, we kind of can maybe at times, again, be kind of so hyper-spiritual that we avoid the basic stuff. Are we committed to being ready for every good work? We should. This is what our call is, how we live in a culture that's not Christian. And then he says, to slander no one. Now listen, no one is tempted to slander a saint most of the time. We're usually tempted to slander people that are bad, or at least that we disagree with. We're tempted to slander people that we disagree with, or people that we feel like are mistreating us. We're tempted to slander those that are the bad boss or the lazy coworkers or the whatever government person were tempted to slander those people what if we sought instead to represent people fairly what if we sought to say i'm going to speak well of people and if i speak in a way that is is critical i'm not slandering I'm not seeking to misrepresent them, but I'm seeking to actually even state their positions and their points in a way that they would say, that's fair, that is what I believe. What if we sought not to slander people? Then you know what would happen? Facebook would shut down because no one would use it. What if we sought to actually speak truthfully, speak well, speak charitably, people in our life and online? What if that is what we were known for? What if you were known in your place of work as the person that didn't speak negatively of co-workers, of boss, of this stupid person in office or that stupid person in office? What if we were known for speaking well of people or speaking charitably of people? Avoid fighting not trying to provoke, not looking for a problem, not just trying to prove ourselves right, not just trying to say, well, let me find the things that I disagree with that are wrong and get in debates and get in arguments, but actually avoided fighting. To avoid fighting means there's probably a lot of opportunities to get in a fight. But we say, I'm not trying to engage in these kinds of things. I'm actually the opposite. I'm seeking to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. That I am the posture that I'm trying to bring is humility to find ways to serve, to find opportunities to bless with my words and with my actions. I'm trying to have a mentality and a posture and an attitude that is gentle to people to all people. Again, Paul is writing. Specifically, in a context of people that disagree, that are hostile. What if that was our mentality? Now, look, none of this is super profound, right? Be nice. Don't be mean, right? I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. Obey. Like, this is sort of preschoolish a little bit. But is it true of our reputation as Christians? Is it true of your reputation as a Christian? What if it was? What if this is actually how we lived? What if in a culture that was hostile to us or in a culture that is not Christian, what if that's how we engaged in it? What if when we see people that disagree with us, that, are, that don't like us, that cast judgment on our beliefs and our values, what if we didn't run away from those people or try to just be like them, but actually engage like this? Gentle, charitable, seeking to do good, not getting in fights. What if we said, I want to bring good into these places? I want to bring good. What if that was our heart? What if that was our commitment? You know this already. But we need to be reminded. It's exactly what Paul says. How do we live in a culture that's not Christian? Paul knows. Paul has talked about, it's a short letter, but he's he's talking to Titus about how to encourage the church he's talked about getting God's word into our lives to shape us. He's talked about kind of just how we live in, in, as younger men and younger women and older men and older women. He's kind of talked about that. And now he's talking about how we live out there. Because Paul knows most of your life is not lived in this room. Most of your life is not lived here on a Sunday morning. It's easy to be a Christian right here. No one's going to judge you for being a Christian right here. No one's hostile towards you for being a Christian right here. This is easy, and Paul knows most of your life is lived out there. Most of your life is lived out in the world, and so how do we live? He says we need to seek to bring good. This has to be the foundation. As you look at those simple verses, is that what you think of as how Christianity is perceived? Is it how you seek to engage where you are? Not integration, not isolation, not indignation, but I am seeking to actually enter and bring good. Now, truthfully, that's hard. That's not easy to do. That's why we have to be reminded of it. So what helps us? to live in a culture that not, that's not Christian? What resources do we have for that? Because it's not easy. It's not easy as you face this in your various relationships. There are people in your life, I know this from talking to you, there's people in your life that reject you. There's people in your life that we just are exposed to the sin around us. It's hard. There's relationships that you have, there's difficult things at work, There's people that are around us that don't deserve us being ready to do good. There's people all around us, in our culture and in specific relationships. So how? How do we have a faith that's attractive? How do we have resources that can help us to live the good that Paul is calling us to? And here's what he says. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. So Paul says we have this calling of how we're supposed to live, and he's going to tell us two different things also that he's reminding us of that we need to remember. And the first is we have to remember that we too were once all of these things. We too were once like the very people that we are now seeking to engage with. We too were once like the very people that we are experiencing the blowback from, or the heat from, or the sin from, or the rejection from, or the misunderstanding from. We too were once like them. And he uses all these different phrases, saying that there was stuff messed up in our mind, and there was stuff messed up in how we lived. And our community was messed up. Our relationships were messed up. And there's things that we loved that were messed up. We loved the wrong things. We thought the wrong things. We did the wrong things. Our relationships went the wrong way. All of that. He says, that's who we were. And Paul says, we too, including himself, which Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was this amazing religious leader. So it's not like Paul was out doing crazy, wild, you know, Pharisees gone wild, uh, you know, things. He was just an, an upstanding religious leader in the community. That's who he was, but he includes himself in this because he knows that he had a heart far from God. He knows that he was deceived and didn't think rightly about reality and life and Jesus. So even if your life you look at and go, I've been a Christian most of my life. It's, I've lived a really good life. I've been moral. You are still here. We're all still here. We're there before Jesus and we are tempted and often go back to that place. Do you not do anything foolish? Do you not think anything foolish? Is there never envy in your relationships or brokenness in your relationships? Is there never various passions that you have for things that are not what God calls you to? You love things more than you should, even if they're good things. He says, that's all of us. And we have to remember who we are, who we were, and who we are continually tempted to be. If not, what happens is we just look at people and say, how stupid are you? How could you not be like me? How do you not get it? How do you not live like me? How do you not see it? If that's our only posture as we look at the world around us is just kind of disgust, anger, just can't believe it. If that's our posture, then we are forgetting who we were. We're forgetting who we are daily tempted to be. If we just look at things around us and people around us and the culture around us and our only heart posture is judgment. Paul says we are forgetting. Listen, if you just look back at your life let's we can even take it out of spiritual categories. Aren't there things in your life that you look back on? Look just you look what kind of jeans did you wear 20 years ago? That's all you need to say. All you got to do is look back and go, man, I've done some dumb things. I used to wear puka shells and I'm not Hawaiian. And I'm trying to look and make sure no one's got puka shells on. You're like, is something wrong with puka shells? Maybe they'll make a comeback. Everything else does. Like you've worn stupid things. You've thought stupid things. You did stupid things, right? We all, and, and then the, the goal is not that you look back at that and just go, what an idiot. I can't believe it. But just, yeah, you know, we, that's okay. I've changed. I've grown. And when you see someone else, you know, when you see a teenager or you see someone that's younger than you, or you, you go, okay, yeah. All right. Every, that's just kind of how it goes. Nobody looks at a baby and goes freaking poop in his pants. Can't <laughs> believe it. Nobody does that. We go, yeah, I used to be there too. And now I've grown and changed. And so there's an empathy that should be there. Paul is saying this if you can't see yourself, if you, this is so important, if you can't see yourself in whoever it is that's hostile to you or living wrongly from what you now know is right, if you can't see yourself in them, you're blind. You've forgotten, which is why he says, We too were once like this. I want you to live like this in a culture that's against you and hostile to you. I want you to live bringing good instead of a self-righteous. Yeah, but they do this and they do this. And Paul says, I know that's what you're going to think. So I have to remind you, you too were once like that. You too once thought like that. You too once were spiritually pooping yourself. That's how you too were once. (laughs) So he says, we have to remember who we were, and then he says you have to remember not just who you were, but remember what God did. Here's the next part. He says, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. So remember who you were. I'll read the rest of it in just a second, but remember who you were, and then remember what God did when you were in that place. When God saw us as foolish, disobedient, enslaved to various passions, malice, envy. When God saw us like that, what did he do? He didn't run away. He came towards us. When God saw us in your life, whether you've been a Christian in your mind your whole life or you had kind of a dramatic conversion experience, wherever you were, Paul is saying God came towards. Jesus Christ entered into this earth. Embodiment of love and kindness, and moved towards the brokenness, the sin, the rejection. He moved towards us. He moved towards the world. God sees your resume. Imagine if you were to go into a job interview and you forgot to bring your right resume, and instead you had, like, in a moment of uh, emo self hate, you had listed off all the things bad about yourself. And instead, you brought in that. You brought in that. No one's going to be like, oh, okay. This seems great. And give you a job. Right? We have people calling through people's social media to find the one bad thing they said and cancel them. God sees everything on your resume. Every thought. Every motive. Every deed. I mean imagine imagine if I had the power. I don't, don't not to freak you out, but to put all of your thoughts, all of your emotions, all of your actions up on that screen. Just one by one, go through. All right. We're gonna look at you today. And just put it up there. Probably every thought turned into an anime video. Every emotion, every action. We would cancel each other. We would all say, I'm I'm canceling myself. God sees all of that. He sees the foolishness, the disobedience, the motives, and it says his kindness and love appeared in Jesus and saved us. That's what he did. Now, if you say, well, why did he do that? Is it because I tried hard to do the right things and change and get my life together? Is it because I see that there's things wrong in me and now I'm trying to correct them? Why did God save you? If you're a Christian, why did he save you? If you're a Christian, why did he show you love? Why did he show you kindness? Is it because you believe the right things? Is it because you are working hard to kind of change ways and have a second leaf? Is it because... You are trying hard to help other people now to come to know him, and you believe the Bible, and you, you really are trying your best to follow him. Why? I remember talking to somebody once that said, I know that I must be really, really valuable in order for Jesus to die for me. And I said, no, you're not, actually. The reality is this, that he says... It's not by works of righteousness that we had done. It's not anything that you did. It's not because of how inherently beautiful and awesome you are and valuable you are. And I'm not saying you're trash, you're made in the image of God. But God didn't look at us and say, wow, I really need you. You're so great, I need you on my team. It's nothing, nothing. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but why? According to his mercy. Mercy means we don't deserve it. Mercy means we don't deserve it. Mercy means God looks at us and says we are actually worthy of death because of our sin against Him. The person, think about the person that has bothered you the most and done the worst to you. We're way worse than that to God. And yet He looks at us with kindness and mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal. That means we're dead and we're made alive. We're old and we're made new by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly. That means he doesn't just kind of save you a little bit or love you a little bit or bring you in a little bit. He abundantly pours out his spirit. Have you ever gone on a hike and there's a waterfall at the end and you stood under the waterfall, if you've never done that, go get hiking. And it's so awesome. Just stand under the waterfall, or at least get splashed a little bit by it. And it's not just like a little bit, it's poured out abundantly on you. He says, That's how much my salvation has come to you. That's how much my grace has come to you. That's how much my mercy has come to you. It's not a little bit, and then you got to make up the extra. It's not a little bit, and now you got to do some good works of righteousness. It is, I'm abundantly pouring out upon you my grace my kindness, and my mercy. Yeah, but I don't deserve that. Of course you don't. That's the point. That's how good he is. It leads us not to see how great I am, how valuable I am, how worthy I am, but to see how merciful he is, how gracious he is, how loving he is. Poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified, that means you're made right now in God's eyes, that it would be wrong It would actually be wrong of God to reject you. You've been justified, legally free, legally made right by his grace. We may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And he says all of that comes through Jesus Christ, which means it's not just that God looks upon us and says, I feel really gracious today. You're in. But it's that Jesus is, purchased all of that for us. You see, the reason that God can give you grace and the reason he can give you mercy and the reason he can give you kindness, even though we're foolish, disobedient, pursuing other pleasures, et cetera, et cetera, all the things Paul said, the reason is because Jesus lived the perfect life in your place. Jesus says, give me that resume of crap and crumbles it up and says, here's my resume. I've lived a perfect life and it's yours now. Oh, okay, I don't deserve that, exactly. It's because Jesus lived the perfect life and said it belongs to you now. And then Jesus died the death that we should die, that we should be separated from God forever, that we should be cast away from God. But because Jesus said, I'll take all the punishment for you, I'll take all of God's wrath towards you on myself, then all that's left for us is the pouring out of grace and mercy and kindness. See, all of that should have this effect, that we don't think how great we are, that God would love us, but we think how great he is, that he would love us. We think how great Jesus is, that he would die in our place to bring us life, and he would pour out. We have an abundant God that pours all of that out upon us. That's the good news, and we have to remember that, We have to remember all these words that we were dirty and he washed. Listen, you were dirty and he washed you. You were dead and he made you alive. You were old and he made you new. You were guilty and he justified you. And you were far and he made you family. That's the good news. You have to remember that. I've got to remember that. We have to remember That, those are the resources that enable us in a culture that's not Christian to have the kind of posture of bringing good to people that we are called to. We live in a hostile culture. Think about where that's hardest for you. Might be at work, might be with family members, might be with other people. We might ask, how do I respond? How am I supposed to live? How how in any way could I ever attract people to the faith? Paul says this, everything we just looked at. This is a trustworthy saying. This is I love that little terminology. He says this is a trustworthy saying. Meaning you can build your life on this. Meaning how how do I live in this culture that's not Christian? He says this is a trustworthy saying. You can build on this. This is something that can keep you going. This is something that when you remember who I was and what he did, then I can reflect that out to those around me. This is a trustworthy saying. You've got all sorts of people all around you, whether we understand it or not, trying to tell you how, as a Christian, you should live here. And it's going to lean towards either indignation or isolation or integration. Just fit in. Don't fit in. Get away from it all. Just be mad. Fight. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. You can build your life on this, remembering his grace and remembering his power to change people. See, when we remember who I was and what he did, we also have a greater confidence in his power to do that again. This is what we are called to and this is what helps us. And then finally, just what is it kind of practically look like then to live in a culture that's not Christian. I know we kind of already went through several of the pieces that he starts with, but he ends again, kind of wrapping it up. He says this, I want you to insist on these things. That's what I'm trying to do. So that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless reject a divisive person after a first and second warning for you know such a person has gone astray and is sinning he is self-condemned there's really two things he kind of summarizes here the first i'll start i'll start with the second one but it'll be our first one is to avoid certain things see the reality is it's easy to get distracted There's this mission that God calls us to. There's this idea of living good and reflecting who he is in the world around us. But it's easy to get distracted by things that are unprofitable. Christians oftentimes, and it depends on kind of your disposition, but love to get in certain debates about things and love to get in certain arguments about things and love to kind of fight about things and love to be divisive and critical. and, And it's easy to kind of have all of our energy going in here instead of out here, and miss what we're called to, because we're fighting and arguing. And he says he knows that's going to be a temptation for us, is to get bogged down. Have you ever seen, this is in a lot of movies, sometimes kind of silly movies or a cartoon or something like that, but uh, it's also in the best movies like Lord of the Rings, where there's uh, like some people that are so Sam and Frodo, they're, they're, uh, they're like around all these orcs, okay? And they're trying to cause a distraction. So Frodo says, Sam, hit me. And he hits him, and it kind of, then all the other orcs kind of start getting in a fight. And there's sort of like all this fight that happens here, and then they kind of crawl out. You know, you've seen kind of different, it's in Looney Tunes all the time, or things like that, right? There's a fight that happens here, and then because everyone's focused on this, these people are able to escape, and they're missing what's happening out there. That happens all the time. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying we can be so busy arguing and fighting and concerned about things that don't matter, that aren't leading to anything profitable, that what ends up happening is we miss what's actually out here, that we are called to, that does matter. He says that's why it's very serious and we should reject people that are causing that to happen. We should reject people. We should have them leave and go. If they want to fight, go fight. There's literally, he's not here, so I feel fine to say this, and I don't remember his name, but there was a guy that came, I don't know, maybe a year ago here, and he told me, I'm a troublemaker. I like to cause problems in churches to get them on the right track. And I said, okay, that's nice. And he knew that I wasn't having it. And I just said, hey, glad you're here today. We're not really looking for that. And he left, hasn't been back. Hopefully he's not watching online and says, oh, I'm still here, you know, I don't, hopefully. Well, he had his first chance, I guess he gets one second warning and then that's it. But that, that, even if it's not that overt, that's easy for us to actually have that posture. What can we argue about? What can we complain about? What can we disagree about? And miss what's out there that we're called to. So avoid, he says, those things. Refocus. And then the second kind of big category is to devote ourselves. So avoid and devote, avoid and devote, devote ourselves to what God has called us to. Listen, God's vision for your life isn't just to be a moral person that doesn't do certain things that you know are wrong. God's vision for your life isn't just that you believe the right things. He says, these people have believed God. That's great, but that's not all. God's vision for your life is not just to be moral, to see the wrong that's in culture, to argue, to come to church, to believe correctly. That's not the end of God's vision for you. God has work for you to do. God has works for you to do. God wants us to believe all the beautiful truth of what he's done and what he's come to do and who he is. He wants us to believe that. And he wants that truth to lead us out to do the good works that he has for us. We can't say, I believe in a gracious God that loves this world and I hate the world and I'm just mad about it. Can't say that. Can't say, I believe in a God that would give himself and serve us and then say, but I I have a lot of Netflix to watch. He wants us to believe and know who he is. And then he has work for us to do, to be devoted to. He has good works for us to be devoted to. We have to demonstrate what we believe. Our life should be lived in such a way that people are compelled because we are showing the God that we believe in. Now, listen, you can take that and say, okay, so I need to, travel to africa and change the world or travel to india and change the world and maybe you do but god's also calling you to do that right where you are he, there's remember he says be ready for every good work there are things all around you there are things all around you but he is calling you he is calling you to be devoted to good works he is calling us together to be devoted to good works here in the church and outside? Are you? Paul says to insist on these things, so I must insist. Are you devoted to good works? Is that your heart and passion? Is that how you're seeking to live in a world that's not Christian? Are you devoted in your job, in your neighborhood, are you seeking to find ways to serve? Are you devoted? Even Look, in the church, we've got needs that you can devote yourself to. Are you devoted here? Are you devoted to good works with your money, with your time? Are you devoted to good works? We have opportunity. We had an opportunity last week to help bless and serve local teachers. We have other opportunities coming up with a ministry we partner with called Hope House. And there's just millions of opportunities around you all the time are you devoted to good works really paul is getting at where's your energy going and the word he uses here is that good works are profitable and then down here all these arguments they're unprofitable that's kind of the question where's my energy going is it profitable is it unprofitable Are the things I'm engaging in profitable or unprofitable? Am I devoted? Am I avoiding? Where's my energy going? That is part of the question that we each have to ask. And listen, also to encourage you. If you are, if you're like, yeah, I am devoted to good works. He says that's profitable. Meaning that matters. God sees that. God values that. It's not a waste. We live in a culture that is hostile in many ways to our faith and to Christianity. And it probably will continue to grow that way. And we want to have a confident faith, a compelling faith, an attractive faith. How? How do we live like that? How do we live like that? Back to the early church. How did they live when it should have just ended? What did they do? Let me give you one last quote from this book. He says, this is from a second century author that wrote this, says, for Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own. They don't just kind of separate, and use a strange dialect, or live life out of the ordinary. They inhabit both Greek and barbarian cities, according to the lot assigned to each. And they show forth the character of their own citizenship in a marvelous, marvelous and admittedly paradoxical way by following local customs and what they wear and what they eat. And in the rest of their lives, they're not just kind of freaks. They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens, and they endure all things as foreigners. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose them, meaning kill babies, still don't do that, once they are born. They share their meals, they're hospitable, but not their sexual partners. They're sexually faithful and what the Bible's ethic calls us to. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives, they supersede the laws. They go above and beyond. They're the best citizens that there are. They are impoverished and make many rich, meaning they live these generous lives, these generous, hospitable, and yet biblically faithful lives. The best citizens holding on to their values and yet bringing good into where they are. That's what we are called to. That was the power that, in part, led the church to not just die out. Imagine if that was true of us. That is our call, to live good, to know the goodness of God and to reflect that out. Paul says, remind them of these things. That's part of why we take communion every week. We're gonna take communion in just a moment. When we take communion, if you didn't grab a little cup on the way in, you can grab communions Communion is when Christians are reminding again of the grace of what Jesus did for us, of who we were and what he did, of who we were and yet how he saved us, how his love, his kindness, his grace, his mercy appeared. We remember that because we're saying every week, I need that again. I need to remember where I was and how he intervened. I need to remember where I was and how his love appeared. And we seek to remember that so then we can go and reflect that and bring his good to wherever we are. So as you take communion, I want to just insist, confess where any of that is not reflective of your life. Confess it to God. He forgives you. Confess to him. And ask him to help you to engage in this world, bringing the good he's called you to. Ask him to empower you, to remind you afresh, even as you take communion, as we sing a few songs, to be reminded and to live. So we may be a church that lives the good, brings the good, even to a world that's not. Father, I thank you that you are a good God that has been good to us, that has saved us, that has been gracious to us. I thank you that we didn't have to earn anything or deserve anything, but that you are the perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly merciful God that gave us your son and bought all of this for us. Thank you. May we live lives that show and reflect that. In your name, Jesus. Amen.